Good morning and welcome to the podcast Economics is Boring, the number one podcast in having the most contradictory name that exists, uh, because of course, as we all know, economics is in fact not boring. Well, anyway, I'll just leave that aside for now, but um, economics is actually really, really, really interesting, and I hope that these past couple episodes have helped you see how it can really help us understand the world and specifically um, be able to make choices uh, within it, uh, better choices, sometimes just be more intelligent about the choices we make. Um, maybe intelligent is not the best word, but more uh, informed, I, I would say. So um, today's episode is called People Respond to Incentives. And so just to get started, I wanted to give you the definition of incentives. I know many of you probably already know it, uh, but I just want to help anyone out there that might be confused with the terminology we will be using. So an incentive is a thing that motivates or encourages one to do something. In economics specifically, incentives do mean that, but um, that's something that is encouraged or motivated. That thing that motivates or encourages someone to do something usually encourages them or motivates them to do something different than they would have otherwise done. So that is a slight difference, I guess you could say, but maybe it's just a more complete um, definition specifically for incentives in economics. It's that, yes, we are persuaded to uh, do something, but that something is different than we would have otherwise done. Because as we've talked about, everybody's got uh, preferences in, um, you know, in, in the world, and so their preferences are going to be different and incentives help us change those preferences and shape them. Specifically, they help politicians, um, government officials, um, companies, uh, families, uh, you, I guess you could say change the behavior of uh, the people that they are in charge of, I guess you could say. So um, let's start with an example, actually. And I want to talk about Apple for a second. Now, I before I continue, I do want to mention this. You may have noticed that I go into a lot of tangents, and sometimes I might really confuse you with where I'm going. And I really hope you understand that is not my purpose. I am really uh, trying to help people understand economics, and I might be failing at doing so, but um, I like economics, and I hope I can help uh, anyone learn at least a little bit about economics but um so just bear with me if my examples are not really helping you out i usually do a couple and so uh, hopefully other examples will help you so as i was saying let's talk about apple for a little bit now uh it is very likely right now that you have an apple phone near you as you're listening to this you might be listening to me through your apple device and um it is also very likely that you might not be listening to me through Apple, but according to recent data, the market share or the estimated market share for Apple is 55.55% of the US population. Uh, obviously that's just in the United States. In the world, it's gonna be different, but just for the sake of this example, um, that means that about half of you or a little more than half of you will have an Apple phone. Um, another 26%, almost 27, will have a Samsung. Uh, LG tracks behind that with 6% market share. Motorola, 3.4. Google, 2.5. Huawei, about 1%. Now, 
Now, why, why am I sharing all of this? Well, Apple obviously is doing something right. Some of you might think, well, um, it's just that they were the first ones to really start with a mobile phone or with a touch screen. Uh, and so that's why they're doing so well. And I would tend to agree with you. At least, at least part of their success has to do with that. But I would say another big part of their success is the way that they incentivize people to buy their product. Now, as you may have noticed, Apple comes out with a phone, a new phone about every year. Now, I actually don't know if they do it every single year, but it seems to me that it is almost every year. Um, and almost every year or two years, they come out with something new in their phone. They might add um, more, you know, like the ear, ear pods. What are they called? Apple pods? I can't remember what they're called, but they're the uh, wireless headphones that are Apple brand, which you can buy nowadays and they're pretty expensive. They also seem to be pretty nice. My dad happened to get some of them and it looked pretty cool the way that um, you could do a lot of things with them. Uh, you could kind of change settings on your phone. Um, anyway, it looked very interesting. I am, to be honest, partial to Apple. I like Apple products and so uh, I use them. Um, and there may be about 26% of you, 20, 27 around there that would, uh, or maybe even, actually it's even more because some of you have LG, some of you have Motorola's, anyway. Point is, a decent amount of you, about 45% of you will disagree and maybe you um, prefer your smartphone device um, or your, I don't, actually these are not all smartphones. Yep, okay, I apologize. Some of you might prefer just your other devices above Apple and that is completely fine but the important here thing here is that Apple is doing something right and that is that they come out with a new phone every year they add new things to their phone which makes it more useful or I mean that could be debatable but many people perceive it as useful we could say uh, and because of that they buy more phones they buy a new phone they buy the newest phone they buy uh, the newest Apple product, the newest Mac, the newest whatever you want to say, the newest iPad, I don't know. People just keep buying their stuff because they come out with new improvements. These improvements are first to try to make more profit because they want to make sure that the people that they're selling to kind of stick with them by showing them that like, hey, we're improving our product, we're making it better. But another reason is just to increase their market share as well. They want to incentivize people to buy their phone above other phones by putting in new things and better things into their phones. And obviously it's worked to some degree. Not all their success can be attributed to just that, to them adding new things to their phones. But I think a big chunk can be attributed to that. The other one is probably that they were one of the first ones to really start with touch screens and that just kind of cemented them as the leaders of the industry. But the reason why, they, why they've held on is because of their innovation and the new incentives, the new uh, character, uh, that's not characteristics, the new things they add into their phones and their new um, benefits that these phones uh, get added into them. And so we see these improvements and we decide to buy a new iPhone. Now, that's not, again, true for everybody, but 
that is how they do it. And I think to some degree, that is why they're able to sell them um, year to year. And yes, they've lost some market share over the years, but they, uh, they've held on to a pretty substantial amount. I mean, it's uh, America's number one phone, right? All right. So that is kind of an example of what an incentive can do. If Apple did not add new things into their phones periodically, then we would probably stop buying their product. Eventually, there would be another company that would make a phone that was slightly better than Apple's or or it would just be a lot more user-friendly. And so Apple would become uh, obsolete because they're not innovating. They're not creating new incentives or new added things into their products to make it so that people buy their product. And so that would happen eventually with time if Apple did not do that. So these incentives, specifically the new things they add into their phones, make it so that we tend to buy things a lot more. Now, that is the first example I want to give you. If, if you're into finance or if you're into any business things, that might have helped you understand what an incentive is like. Now, for any fathers or mothers out there or really anybody that's had to deal with children uh, in some way or another, um, another way we could explain incentives or not necessarily explain, but give an example with incentives would be in a family. So let me ask you this. If you've ever been a child, which we've all been children, it is very likely you were grounded at some point. Now, uh, you probably didn't think about economics at this point in your life. You probably were just thinking, I want to play video games or uh, I want to go out with my friends or whatever it is, but I can't because I've been grounded. But right now, as you're learning economics, you will come to learn that ground be, being grounded is actually an incentive for you to stop a negative behavior that your parents don't want you to keep doing. That is why they grounded you. They wanted you to um, estimate the cost of doing whatever it is that they didn't like you doing against the the cost of, um, sorry, estimate the benefits of doing whatever your parents didn't want you to do against the cost of the, gr the grounding, the being grounded and not being able to go out with your friends or play video games or whatever it was for you. Um, these incentives were made so that you would stop a certain behavior. Now, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, incentives can be positive or negative. And what I mean by positive or negative is that they can either make it so that you change your behavior to, towards doing something or change your behavior towards not doing something. In this case, being grounded is that kind of incentive. Obviously, your parents were probably not monsters, so they probably also gave you positive incentives, maybe. And, and I mean... Uh, this is very general and it might not be accurate at all, but I'm sure some of your parents maybe gave you incentives, for example, to wash the car for a certain amount of money. Uh, and maybe they just made you wash the car. I don't know. But at least my parents had certain things that they would incentivize us to do by putting a dollar amount on us doing that thing. They wanted to uh, have us do that thing, right? That was a positive incentive that they were giving us, right? Another incentive I got a lot was, well, if you do all your chores, you do your homework, you do this and that, then you can play video games for a certain amount of time. Okay, well, that was an incentive to play or, you know, to, to do all these things, these responsibilities that they wanted me to do so that I could play. I could get the payment of playing. So 
Incentives are not always incentivizing, as you have noticed, something that you want. Some, the majority of the time they're incentivizing, specifically positive uh, incentives, are incentivizing something you don't necessarily want that much. And that is very true when it comes to any government program or any kind of incentive that we receive from government. It's usually something that we are not willing to do that much, but the incentive kind of breaches that cost and benefit um, so that we end up choosing to do that thing. It makes it so that we feel like it is worth it now, but without that incentive, we wouldn't see it as worth it. Uh, same thing with negative incentives. Usually they are trying to decentivize something that you probably really want to do. And that is really interesting, at least to me, that um, positive incentives usually incentivize something we don't want. Negative incentives usually incentivize something we do want, or at least that the person who is the subject of the incentive wants or doesn't want. Um, because we'll give some examples here in a few seconds about things that maybe not everybody wants, but that we give incentives to stop. So uh, for let's give a few more examples. Now let, let's move to the workplace when talking about incentives. An incentive at our workplace might be some kind of commission or maybe a bonus at the end of the year. Now, obviously you're not guaranteed these things. You have to do something to receive them. If you are on commission, you need to sell. You need to sell as many things as you can so you can get the most possible commission, right? That is at least how I thought of it when I was a salesman. Um, and then obviously, if you're getting a bonus, you have to have proven to some degree to your manager that you deserve that bonus. They they need to feel like you did. At least we, we might not talk about it, but in reality, if you were a pretty bad at you know, worker throughout the year, they might not be very happy to give you a bonus, but the better you worked, probably the bigger your bonus, right? The, the, the more you worked. Another example, specifically a negative um, incentive, is the taxing of cigarettes. So we're new, moving to government now a little bit, right? Um, cigarettes are obviously a net bad for society. At least most people agree that that's the truth. And so because they are, we consider them a net bad, uh, the government has decentivized the use of cigarettes by imposing a tax on them. That means that people that want to smoke and could probably afford smoking a lot easier now have to give up a little bit more money to receive the good or, yeah, the good that they want, right? The product that they want. And so as you can see, this incentives kind of really connect with um, opportunity costs, right? Whenever we go outside and decide we want to buy something, we take into account its price. And so in this case, the opportunity cost of having cigarettes is not worth it to some people that might want to smoke. And to some others, they're still going to smoke, but it's going to cost them a lot more and they're going to therefore be able to smoke a lot less. So the government and as a society, we're trying to decentivize that because we perceive it as something bad. All right. So after a couple of those examples, I wanted to go into a little bit more high level uh, stuff. So we'll start talking a little bit about, uh, about some other incentives that are not as easy to perceive. For example, um, lotteries are a sort of incentive. They incentivize uh, 
schools or or people, I guess you could say. It's kind of hard to to think about who it incentivizes, but really what it an incentivize is not the right one here. It's decentivize. Um lotteries, for example, for school, decentivize um the acceptance of people with more money or with a certain characteristic that might be preferred. It just randomizes who gets to go to school. It's a sort of incentive that decentivizes um, preferences, right? It makes it so that the people chosen are the ones that got lucky. And so that's a kind of incentive or, or I guess yeah, ne a negative incentive that you could think of, something that um, decentivizes that exists. There's also other sorts of things like uh, like these, specifically when there is a product, a certain product that we maybe want. Um, sometimes you could just make a line to get this product, right? Let's let's say there was some product that everybody in the world wanted, and well, you have the people that are willing to wait for it in line and the people that are not willing to do that. Um, and so obviously this disincentivizes the people that are not willing to be in the line of getting the product. Now, this product might not always be just a good. It might be, for example, um, healthcare, right? Free healthcare. There might be someone that's really rich that's not willing to wait in a line to receive free healthcare. Um, so they'll just decide to go ahead and buy their own stuff. It might not be free, but they're going to be able to get it. They're just going to have to pay for a certain healthcare. And those who are willing to wait in line will not. And so people, um, I guess you could say people with more valuable time are willing to pay more to get whatever it is that they want. And um, and so people with less valuable time are then the ones that are incentivized to get whatever it is that um, is being given out or being sold. Um, and if they're willing to stand there, then they get it. And so why am I sharing these things that maybe don't have a really strong uh, example? That's because that's kind of how government works. Specifically, government does this with policies and with trying to help those that are in need and uh, with all these kind of things. They exclude those that have more to be able to make it so that those that have less are able to get them. Uh, get those things. And so in, in, in that way, they decentivize people from doing things. They're not really strong examples because one could argue that it's not really the government decentivizing things. It's just the government saying how it's going to be. But they are decentivizing uh, in some way or another people from getting into certain programs by making it so that you can't if you meet a certain set of requirements. And so... Um, that's something they, they do. And incentives are often like that. It might be sometimes that it's just stuff that you can't do. Um, and it just disallows you from being able to receive that unless you're in a certain category, I guess you could say. All right. Um, let's get back to a little bit of an example that you might understand a little more, which is coupons, right? You see this all the time. Um, and I hope you understand, like, I'm saying all these examples just because I want you to be able to see all the incentives that you see in your life, whether they come from uh, the people around you that you love or if they come from businesses that are trying to sell to you or government that's trying to um, govern you, right? Um, 
all these incentives, you're seeing them daily and we often don't even realize they're there. But I want to invite you to kind of take a look at what you see around you and see what kind of incentives are, are you're receiving and, and maybe calculate a little bit better. Try to think a little bit more about whether you're willing to do those things or not. Just pay a little more attention to those. You might be surprised at what you're able to to learn about the world around you. Anyway, coupons are another sort of incentive. They incentivize those that are willing to um, to look through a bunch of ads and maybe pieces of paper in a in a I don't know in a newspaper or or sometimes they incentivize you to look through your mail to find them, um, so that you or at least you're incentivized to do that so that you can buy things at a cheaper price at this at the store or at your favorite fast food restaurant. And so these incentives kind of incentivize you as well. And that is the purpose of these companies. They want to make sure that more people buy their products. And if they lose a little bit in, of their margin, they don't mind that much because they have more customers that are buying their product. And as we will soon learn in the near future, um, actually, I don't even remember if we already talked about it, but supply and demand uh, is affected by these kind of things. And you will notice that all of these affect specifically demand. Now that's pretty interesting. Um, but before we keep going, I'm just gonna go on a brief, um, we're gonna go on a brief break to listen to our sponsors. Now, if you're listening to this in the in the future, this will make no sense. But if you're listening to this on the ninth. Uh, on the on September 26th of 2020, uh, it will make complete sense. Obviously, there is no sponsor on this episode yet, but when there is, there will be an ad in between uh, that little pause that we just made. Anyway, um, let's see. All right, so let's leave aside demand for a second. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the future, but I just want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Incentives affect demand and sometimes they affect supply too specifically if there's an incentive for a company to stop doing something so i mean that could happen too but it mostly affects demand specifically the demand of whoever the actor that is trying to do a certain thing they affect their demand for doing that thing or buying that product or whatever it is that you want to think about all right so let's talk about some negative. Uh, no, I shouldn't say negative, actually. That might confuse you because I've said negative incentives in the past. Let's see some bad consequences uh, from incentives that were not foreseen. We They were unexpected. Um, now, incentives don't always do what they were intended to do. And often... Uh, as I was learning this, I thought, well, incentives are the best. We just gotta, I just gotta make sure that I just incentivize everything that wants, I want to happen specifically, for example, for my kids, if I, when I eventually have some, right, I, I want to give them good incentives. So they do the things that I want them to do. Um, if I want to own a business, I got to come up with good incentives to incentivize people to buy more of my product, uh, maybe even at a higher price. But of course, incentives are not perfect. And they they, there's always an example for how they can go wrong. And so we will go through a couple of those examples to help you see how incentives aren't always 
good. We got to think through them. We got to really think of what they might, what behavior they might change before we really put something into place. And so we're going to see some of the incentives that have happened specifically in government that have failed, that have had unforeseen consequences, um, that have had bad consequences. And so let's start out with this. Uh, for example, the ban of alcohol in the USA. Back in the day, alcohol was banned for some time uh, by the government. And this ended up being a bad thing because alcohol became uh, a substance that was sold by people, you know, sketchy people, by the mafia and by, uh, by a in a black market. It, was, it started being sold in a black market uh, at a higher prices and... Um, a lot of crime and specifically growth in these crime families happened because of the ban of alcohol. They were able to get a lot of money and resources because the government had banned alcohol. And so in this case, the ban of alcohol was a bad thing to do because it made it so that um, these uh, criminals, the, the mafia, was able to grow through the money that was given to them from the black market um, of alcohol in the USA. And so eventually, as we know, if Anybody knows history here, and uh, if you don't, that's fine. But eventually, this ban of alcohol stopped, and um, alcohol was legal again. And when that happened, then uh, the crime families didn't have that income, I guess you could say, uh, from alcohol. Another law, for example, that passed uh, was seatbelt laws. Now, I'm not trying to advocate for not using a seatbelt. That is not necessarily uh, – well, That that is – Seatbelts are good, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, but they have had an unforeseen consequence, uh, and it has been negative to a degree, but it's still better than the alternative. And so let's think about that. Even though something might have a negative consequence or a bad consequence, it can still have a better outcome than the alternative. So seatbelts are that example. Uh, when seatbelts became, it became a law for you to wear a seatbelt, well, people started driving a little bit more carelessly which led to an increase of uh, accidents. Not more accidents, but uh, I mean, the estimated, I guess, let me talk about it this way. Let's talk about it with statistics. So what happened was that, yeah, with uh, the, the mandate to wear seat belts uh, came a lot more safety for drivers and accidents do decrease because of seat belts. But they, here, here it comes more violent accidents happen now than before. So there might be less accidents now than in the past, but more violent ones happen now. Why is that? Because people feel safer with the seatbelt, which makes it so they're willing to take more risk when they're driving. They drive a little bit faster. They drive a little bit crazier because they believe their seatbelt will save them. Uh, and that is something that is statistically true. I mean, uh, accidents have lowered but worse accidents or more, yeah, just more violent accidents uh, have increased uh, increased after seatbelt loss. So that's a negative outcome, but it is better than the alternative of just having a lot more accidents. And um, who knows? We really don't know exactly how good or bad it was. But I have a feeling that it was better than not having seatbelts, specifically with a lot more faster cars coming out, bigger cars, and just 
yeah, the possibility of being in a car accident. So seatbelts are good. And that's, I was just trying to give an example of unforeseen consequences. All right, let's think about taxes now. Now, uh, as I mentioned in this podcast in the past, this is not supposed to be about politics, but uh, when it comes to government, government gives a lot of incentives. And so we got to look at some of these. Um, There is a negative effect for high taxes. In fact, it's been uh, proven in economic academia for for a long time. Um, There's usually a graph that's associated with this negative effect. It's called the Laffer Curve. Uh, essentially, what it states is that if you tax too much, if you give a tax, for example, a really high tax of 100%, that means that nobody's got any money to spend, which means that the economy doesn't grow. The government's taking all the money. And because the government's taking all the money, nobody has the desire to create new things because they know all their money will be taken away. There's also a, a negative side of no taxes right? Which is that the government has no money. There's no infrastructure that is built. There's no way for the government to try to keep certain laws, specifically maybe even, well, not maybe, without taxes, the government would not be able to institute institutions like the police department or the fireman department, sorry, firefighter department. It makes it harder for the government to keep us safe, to deal with the things that we don't want to deal with, which is specifically, like I said, uh, keeping the law and and, um, trying to save people from fires and national defense. There's many things that taxes are good for. So again, this is not supposed to be political. But the point is that too high of a tax is bad, right? Too low of a tax is bad, but it can still be done if the tax is low. You could still be able to pay for these things that are necessary. You might not be able to pay for a lot of things that the government wants to do. And maybe that certain uh, people in the country want to do. But at least we can keep you safe. With too high of a tax, the economy won't grow. And it just stunts the growth of an economy. And so let's talk about why that happens. Well, if you have too high of a tax, rich people will leave right? They have the money to leave and go wherever they want. And they most likely will go to a country that has a lower tax rate so they can keep the majority of the money that they make, right? And so when you do that, you decrease the amount of people that would create businesses, that would hire people, uh, and you essentially send it to another country with lower taxes. And when that happens, that means that new businesses are not being created, less jobs are in the economy, and the only people that you can tax now are the middle class and the lower class, which means that you will have a lot less taxes because if, if you know anything about tax codes in the United States, uh, we have a, a, I think it's called a progressive tax. Let me, let me just make sure. I usually, in my other podcast, I did it in Spanish, and so I can't remember. Uh, let's see. But uh, maybe the name doesn't uh, doesn't matter as much. But essentially what it means is that if you make a certain amount, you pay higher taxes on the additional amount over the limit of what? Of a, the tax bracket. There's tax brackets. And so if you make $10,000, you'll be taxed differently than if you make $500,000, right? Um, And so, again, it's just, anyway, 
I'll leave that aside for now. If you're not in the U.S., it might be harder for you to understand, but I invite you to uh, look up tax how taxes work in the U.S. and in your specific country as well. That that would probably be really helpful. Um, but that's the thing. Uh, Laffer Curve states that if you have too high of a tax, uh, there will be a lot less uh, that the government can do. And, and specifically, if the government's taxing all your money, then you don't get to keep any of your money. And so uh, eventually the government will not get that much money because you will not be incentivized to work if the government's just going to take all your money away. And so you end up getting less tax revenue even for government. So it's not even that it has a bad effect on the people, but it also has a bad effect on the government because if you have higher taxes, eventually people will leave and some will decide not to work, which means you will be getting less tax uh, income. And so there is a point in this Laffer curve where it kind of evens out so that there's a perfect tax that gives the most amount of uh, uh, tax revenue for government. It also makes it so that people are still willing to work and uh, do everything they do to help the economy keep growing. But nobody knows exactly where it is. That's why we have so many changes in government with taxes uh, when a party takes over and then when another one does as well. So the idea here is that a really high tax is not always the best option. A really low tax is not always the best option. It's somewhere in between. And we just got to find where that place is. And uh, that might take years and a long time and a lot of experimentation. And it might change over time depending on people's preferences. So um, let's just leave that aside for now. But the point is that taxes can have a negative effect if they're too high. Um, all right. Let's talk about another, yet another government thing that um, that happens, which is affordable housing loss. Now, in the face, in their face, they are really good, and I mean, they're not, they're not something that we should be frowning upon because it is meant to help people. But uh, the way that it uh, incentivizes people uh, is not the best way. Why is this? Well, imagine you're a homeowner in California, where affordable housing laws pass, which make it so that even though your property is valued at a certain amount, uh, you can only ask so much for the rent or so much for, yeah, so much for the rent. This means that your investment that you had made because you thought, well, I'm going to be able to make a lot of money out of this is lost. And an investment of buying a, a home or, or an apartment is not a cheap one. Housing is pretty darn expensive, right? And so you lose a huge investment. Now, as a rational person, how do you deal with this? Well, the law is making it so that you can't have as much money as you would like. And specifically, what happens if, for example, a tenant destroys the laundry machine? You're going to have to be the one that pays for it, not the tenant all the time, right? Uh, whenever the house has any plumbing problems, whenever it has any kind of um, mouse uh, insect infestations, anything like that, you're going to have to pay for it if you're the homeowner, which means that the income that you're getting out of the house, the rent might not be worth it. You might end up getting like $100 each month because of all the upkeep that you have to do on the property. And so what are you incentivized to do? You're incentivized to do the least amount of taking care of the property that you can. You only do what is absolutely necessary. You don't repaint. You don't improve. You don't change. Uh, you, you don't make the, the home's electric, electrical system more efficient over the years because, well, 
uh, it's going to cost money and you don't necessarily have a lot of income coming in from that apartment. And so that's a negative effect of affordable housing loss. It makes it so that housing is a lot crappier because, well, uh, people that own property might feel like, well, I'm not getting that much. And so I shouldn't be putting that much into this if it's not a good investment. Uh, eventually, they might sell it off and they or they might not even be able to sell it off, which makes it even worse. It makes means that they uh, they're going to spend the least amount because it might become a liability at that point. So it's just is just a negative thing that can come from affordable housing loss. Um, now. I'm not really an advocate of them because I think it really does damage the people that it's meant to help the most. I mean, if you're looking for affordable housing, you should be able to find something that you can live in that is nicer, right? Uh, but you end up having something worse. Uh, as we will learn in economics, usually what leads to lower prices is more demand. Um, and so, or sorry, more supply. If you're able to create a lot more housing, that means that business or homeowners are willing to take a lot less because they have so much competition that if they're able to get you, they'll have a certain paycheck. They'll, they'll have a sure income. But if they're not able to find someone, then they won't. Now, supply increases when things are good. The things are looking economically good. If California got rid of its affordable housing loss, it might become the case that people will, would think, well, California has a lot of people. And they probably want to move into a nicer house than they're living in now because housing is super expensive. And so uh, I should just build something in California. And they build something in California and it's going to be a lower price because a lot of other people are thinking the same thing. Now, obviously, this is not a perfect idea. And there are other things that I'm not taking into account here. But as someone studying economics, I feel like affordable housing laws tend to be not so beneficial. Um, so with that, we'll end this episode. I hope you were able to see some positive effects of incentives, some negative effects of incentives, um, and some unforeseen consequences, right? Um, but I guess with that, I'll leave you. I hope you were able to learn a lot. I'm just going to do a very small recap of what we went over. We went over how incentives can be uh, have positive or negative effects. And what I mean by that is that they can incentivize us to do something or they can decentivize us from doing something. Incentives can also have unforeseen consequences, which are often not easy to see. And you can't really blame someone for, for uh, not finding a negative effect of an incentive. But that leads us to the idea that when we are trying to come up with incentives, maybe we should think through them a little more before deciding that something is good just because of the merits of it, right? Or, or not necessarily the merits, but the ideals behind it. Sometimes the ideals might be sound, but the execution is not that great uh, when it comes to the incentive that is given. All right, with that, we'll leave you for today and we'll see you two weeks from now. Have a good day and uh, take care.